Jesus Christ died on the cross to show the marvel of God's love, grace, and forgiveness to guilty sinners. Jesus died on the cross to show the marvel of God's love. Those are the important words. The marvel of God's love, grace, and forgiveness to guilty sinners. And here are the verses that I'm going to be looking at this morning. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, emphasize that. That he gave his only son, emphasize that. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We're going to look at that verse. This is the next verse, verses we're going to be looking at. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, then as he thinks it through. Well, perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that, here's the time word, while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. We're going to look at those verses. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Emphasize these words. According to the riches of his grace. So we're continuing to unpack this uh, treasure chest of, of Calvary. We've been working through this Sunday night. The rest of the teaching of the New Testament, the whole breadth and width of its theology, it all unfolds around the, the nucleus, the, the center of the cross of Christ. Before we're done with this series, as we continue with it Sunday night, we'll study no less than 27 different effects of the cross of Christ on our lives today. All of them are are beautiful beyond my ability to tell them. But being the sinners that we are, this morning's truths should perhaps warm our hearts most deeply. Jesus died on the cross to show the marvel of God's love and grace and forgiveness to guilty sinners. Just to be clear, we are not examining just how wonderful it is to be forgiven. That's not the subject this morning. True as that obviously is. It's a wonderful thing to be forgiven. What we're examining, and I hope to show you why it's vitally important to do so, is how God is magnified in the way we are forgiven. Okay? The subject is God's glory in our forgiveness, not just our freedom from sin in our forgiveness. Even as we study the subject of forgiveness received through Christ Jesus, it's important to put the spotlight where it belongs on the marvel of God's love and grace and forgiveness. Or to put it in Paul's words from Ephesians, according to the riches of his grace. We looked at that verse 1-7. So, we are recipients of forgiveness, sure enough. But there's a sense in which forgiveness isn't primarily about us. Forgiveness is primarily about God as the magnificent giver of forgiveness. That's what I want to look at this morning. In other words, forgiveness, as I'm going to take some time 
explaining in a few minutes, it magnifies the greatness of God, not the greatness of me. Forgiveness, according to the scriptures, is according to the riches of God's grace, not, as many North American churches would teach today, not according to the riches of my worth. God is magnified in the cross of Christ. Not Don Horbin or Ron Dyer. Point number one. The Bible sets forth the glory of God in our forgiveness with two different arguments. First, we see the greatness of God's forgiveness in the preciousness of the sacrifice given. That's the John 3.16. You know it. For God so loved the world that he, he gave his only son, only, only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the argument from that verse, beloved and known by just about everybody, is God loved the world so much. God so loved the world. How do we measure it? How much is so much? Well, he loved the world so much that he gave his only son. So you can, you can tell how much God loved the world by the nature of the gift that he gave. He didn't give something extra. He didn't give something he had plenty of. He didn't give something left over. He gave the best he had as creator and owner of all that is. Praise, praise the Father, praise the Son, we sang. Praise the Spirit, three in one. Well, he gave that son. How great is Jesus Christ? And the Father gave him. There. That's only one argument. I said there were two. Two different arguments setting forth the glory of God and our forgiveness. First, the nature of the gift given. That's the first argument. But the second is not, it's not the value of the gift given, but the nature of those for whom the gift was given. You see that again in Romans 5, 7, and 8. Paul builds this argument. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. There really aren't any, but we know what he means. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God, so this is different, but God shows his love for us in that while we were, this is us. While we were still sinners. So not for a good person, not for a righteous person, for really bad people. Sometimes, says Paul, people will do special things for special people. Watch the news. You hear the odd story. On rare occasions, someone will give his or her life, perhaps a parent for a child, a husband for a wife, a soldier for his or her country. It doesn't happen all that often, and when it does, we all stand back, awards are given, mention is made, just admiration for the sheer heroism of 
that kind of event. We admire it. Paul says that happens sometimes. That happens. But it's not what happened on the cross. That's Paul's point. People right here on earth will make special sacrifices for people whom they feel merit it. Paul, in his carefully crafted contrast, he says, we're not to think of the event of the cross in terms like that at all. That's not what's happening on the cross. He doesn't deny that we find ourselves in a unique place in God's creation. He just says we must not think of ourselves as creatures who merited what happened on the cross. It wasn't our worth or our worthiness. What makes the glory of God's love and forgiveness shine so brilliantly is the fact that Christ died for us while we were sinners in another place. Paul says he died for us while we were God's enemies. That's the word he uses. And still another place he says, quite bluntly, Christ died for the ungodly. There weren't any godly people to die for. The point is the same in each case. This is how we are to see ourselves. When we think of God's redeeming grace in Christ, God's love wasn't drawn out by something meriting in its object. We are to stand and glorify only the source of forgiveness. Only God. That's why forgiveness truly is, as Paul says in our Ephesians text, forgiveness is according to the riches of his grace, not the worthiness of the recipient. Do you see the difference? The riches of his grace. That's where it's anchored. Not, boy, I must be pretty special. This is, I guess, really only stating the obvious. If you drill down a little deeper, another question bubbles up. If these two things are true, we see the glory of God's grace. We marvel at it because of the preciousness of the gift given, his only son, and the unworthiness of the recipients, sinners, ungodly, enemies. Okay, if this is where we're going, Pastor Don, so God's love is really, really special. Now the question is, why is it so important that we know this? Because the Bible sure labors to get this point across. There has to be a reason. As long as I'm forgiven... Why do I need to know the theology? It matters more than anything else you can think about this morning. It matters because if God's grace is given to me because somehow I'm worthy of it, then God is simply making a good business deal, a prudent choice. If I get grace because I'm somehow worthy of it, then what I'm really getting isn't grace. It might be help. But help isn't the same as grace. It may be assistance. 
But that's not the same as grace. It might be a bargain of some sort. It may be an investment in my future if God thinks somehow he'll get something out of me down the road. But it isn't grace. If there's something in me that draws it out and makes God's investment worth it, then it's not according to the riches of his grace. There's another factor involved. And that's because grace, by any dictionary's definition, the key concept, look it up, it's grace is undeserved favor or kindness. If it isn't undeserved, it isn't grace. If you get grace, you didn't deserve it. That's why it's called grace. Once you deserve it, you have to call it something else because you can't call it grace anymore. If you're worthy of grace, you neuter grace. I should have asked Rini if I could use that word. And if the cross of Jesus isn't pure, undiluted, breathtaking, unexplainable, marvelous grace, then you have to rewrite the whole New Testament. So here's the huge question. How is my love for God increased? Love the Lord your God with with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, strength. Jesus put mind in. What kind of praying, what kind of worshiping, what kind of thinking helps the church to love God more than it presently does? Or, or let me state it differently. How, how do we, in a society, in a culture like ours, how do we hold all the competing idols for our attention and affection and distraction, how do we hold them all at bay and keep God in first place? How does that happen? See, this is a pretty practical question. That's where today's teaching comes into play. We, we stoke the furnace of love for God in only two ways. First... By remembering who it is that came and died. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Remembering first who it is that came. And second, we stoke the furnace of love for God by remembering who we were when he came and died. Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Oh, oh, the curse of putting these thoughts into a file marked as if they were true. Just holding them as some kind of bland religious doctrine. Remember these Two New Testament explanations for the cross. And you will go a long way in keeping yourself in the love of God. Jude 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. 
Notice, note to self. Keep yourselves in the love of God. This isn't done for you. This is something you do. You do it. Keep yourself in the love of God. That's the heartbeat of today's Palm Sunday teaching. The marvel of his love is displayed in those two things. What God gave, who came, for whom the gift was given, people like us. And it matters that we keep those things in mind because that's how you fuel a deeper love for God. Okay, that's where we've come so far in this teaching. Point number two. Remembering my unworthiness of God's grace in Christ Jesus creates confidence and faith in a way that magnifying my own self-worth never can. That's where I want to go with this. Consider this. How, How you perceive your start in grace has everything to do with how successfully you will grow in grace. So, if you begin doing nothing but humbly magnifying God's undeserved grace given in Jesus Christ, you will more readily continue to trust in that same undeserved grace for your future. Everybody understand that point? If you start embracing that and really understand it, you will continue to grow in that more effectively and more easily. And you're going to need to rely on God's grace all your life. We all know the schemes of the devil, don't we, to gum up spiritual power and life in our souls? I mean, we all know how he constantly reminds us of of all that we should be but aren't. I'm just curious, does the enemy ever do that to anybody else in this room? Yeah, the reason you all laughed is, stupid question, Pastor Don, don't even need to put my hand up. We know he, he reminds us. He loves to suck the wind out of our sails with his accusations and his condemnation. You're never going to be free of that. So the question is, how are you going to fight that? How are you going to deal with that? What's your plan? Well, here's the wrong way. The wrong way to fight it is to argue and debate with him that you aren't as bad as he says. That's a sucker's game. This kind of mental twiddle-twaddle, that's the Greek. (laughs) This kind of mental twiddle-twaddle is counterproductive and it's death-dealing because you will feel the lack of your own integrity as you try and defend your strengths to Satan. And then the devil will make you feel like a hypocrite for even trying to put up a good front. Here's the problem with that approach. Unless you're truly an amazingly wonderful, righteous person, okay? Unless you're absolutely certain that you unfailingly and unceasingly love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength with every breath you take. Ken, that's not you because you don't bring yours into the sanctuary anymore. Unless you're truly an amazingly wonderful, righteous person, 
and are absolutely certain you unfailingly and unceasingly love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you do that with every breath. As long as you can't think of one human being, not even one enemy, one annoying enemy that you don't love more than you love yourself, then your defending yourself against the devil is a pretty dangerous game. It's a pretty dangerous game. Because even if you are that amazingly holy, I don't know why you're here, but even if you are that amazingly holy and you can say all of those things about yourself in complete honesty, then the devil will still cause you to revel in your own self-righteousness and you'll start spiritually to choke on your pride at how holy you are. You lose either way. Let me tell you the right way. The right way to stand your ground in confidence when the devil marshals your fears in front of you, and I'm not going to split hairs. Sometimes it's the devil. Sometimes it's your own conscience. You're just an insecure person. You don't always need the help of the enemy. Sometimes those things just rise up. I'm just no good. You still have to deal with it. Don't argue. If it's from the devil, don't, don't even waste your time speaking to him. He's not interested in you anyway. But do remember to do this. When you feel spiritually, when you feel lower than a snake's belly in a wagon rut, when that's how you feel inside, remember how you started out in your walk with Jesus Christ. Remember that Christ already came and died for you when you were his enemy. Remember that that precious gift, God the Son on the cross, remember that that was given for you when you were ungodly. Remember that he knew your fallen, hopeless, spiritual state when he took you into his redeeming love. Remember that he wasn't surprised by your sin or your failure, nor was he so turned off that he refused to offer you his forgiving grace. That's how you started. That's how you got in. Now here's the point. Just as our Lord began his redemptive work in you and me while we were totally unworthy of it, he will continue to cleanse and forgive as we place our trust in that same ongoing, undeserved, unmerited grace. Somebody say, good news, good news. That's wonderful stuff. Just as our Lord began his redemptive work in you while you were totally unworthy, he will continue. That's the thrust of Paul's argument. You see it so clearly. This is the last text we're going to look at. In Romans 5, 10 and 11. For if... So now he's, now he's working out a theory here. That's what that's all about. If while we were enemies, there's the time... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. There's the preciousness of the gift again, like John 3.16. Now look at these words, everybody. Say them with me. If I could do that a thousand times. 
Not the same as. You came a wretched sinner and he took you in. Not just equal to that. Way more than that. Now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, here's what you do instead of condemnation. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Those are great verses. Do you see it? Magnify your self-worth and you short-circuit your future. Your unworthy start is your ace in the hole. It's your path to continued confidence and hope. It's your proof that Christ will never leave you. He will never forsake you. You didn't earn his love and grace at the beginning. And that means you cannot and do not earn it now. When does the devil get so interested in your spirituality? When he starts talking to you about you're a poor worshiper, you don't pray well. When does he start caring about prayer? You know what he's doing. He's trying to make you feel like a louse. The last thing he wants you thinking about is Romans 5, 10, and 11. That's death to the work of the enemy in your life. I hope you feel as good about this as I do. Maybe I just need it more than you. I don't know. Your unworthiness is the fountain of God's grace And God's grace is the fountain of your future hope. Don't ever throw it away. Because when you have to start making withdrawals, the bank account of your own worthiness will run out long before the bank account of God's endless riches in grace and mercy. That is why I'm wrapping up. That is why thinking and praying about sin and repentance, contrary to what a lot of shallow-thinking Christians believe, teaching about repentance and sin is never negative when it's properly understood. I still remember, it wasn't that long ago, lots of times during communion we sing... Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I at the cross, at the cross? Did that one Sunday, and I was still standing at the front, and a, a person, I won't go into gender, a person came up to me and said, uh, I hate it when you sing that. I think it's a terrible thing. I refuse to sing those words. I'm not a worm. Jesus didn't die for worms. And he, val- he valued me. Do you see why why this person saw Jesus coming? He valued me. That's death right there. Because you're not always going to feel valuable. He valued me more than all the worms in the world. Fair enough. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. I also noticed that the editors in the hymn... We use the, video, the, the visual for the hymn, and I also noticed how some editors have been at work. Drives me nuts. And they must have agreed with those sentiments. They changed the line to remove any mention of worms. I noticed a large American church where they sang Amazing Grace, and they changed that line that saved a wretch like me to that saved a one like me. 
It's not a big deal, I guess. It's still salvation. Apparently, our self-esteem is a pretty fragile beast. And I suppose it's true. I started thinking about that. I, I suppose it's true that we're not worms. We are people. We are people made in God's image. But I can't help think Isaac Watts, he must have known the anatomical differences between people and worms when he wrote that great hymn at the cross. He had to know that. Granted, science wasn't where it is today, but I'm going to lay odds that they knew the difference between people and worms. So what was Watts trying to say in those words? What was he in his time, in his day, in his era? What was he trying to accomplish? What was going on in his mind that our culture of self-esteem is in danger of missing? I'll tell you what it is. I think he was trying, in the most striking words his poetic mind could come up with, he was trying to underscore this powerful truth of our total unworthiness when we bow before the cross of Christ. So, fair enough. I'm not a worm. But when we consider the cross of Christ and the grace that is there revealed, I do have something in common with a worm, and so do you. Neither one of us deserves God's grace. And I don't deserve it any more than... Are worms he and she... Neither one of us is worthy of the love of God in Jesus Christ. God descends as fully to reach and rescue and pardon me as to any other creature on earth. The day I forget that, it's at my peril. There's one other thing, by the way. One other thing to remember when you feel insulted by Isaac Watts' words. It's a sword that kind of cuts two ways. No, you are not a worm. I think Watts knew that all along. And Jesus didn't die for worms, true enough. But wait a minute. Then again, he didn't have to die for worms. Worms don't make idols so insulting to God and then bow down and worship them. Worms don't do that. People do. Worms don't fill up, as far as we know, worms don't fill up their lives with material goods until the love for God gets spoiled and drowned out. Worms never treated God with contempt, never ignored him as inconsequential. Worms never blaspheme God. Worms never quench his spirit. Worms never reject his son. People do that, not worms. So Jesus didn't die for worms because, well, he didn't have to. Worms don't sin. People do. Worms aren't made in the image of God, and I'm imagining less is expected of them. So it's true. We are created in a much more wonderful way than worms. And we've also fallen a much greater distance and we've rebelled against much greater light. Worms aren't bad enough for God to give his son. People are.
There's not a worm on earth that has as much to repent of as Don Horbin. And there's certainly not a worm on earth that has as much to rejoice in as Don Horbin and God's wonderful redeeming grace. Maybe we should sing Isaac Watts' hymn with more joy in our hearts than we sometimes do. Nothing will keep you grounded in the love of God than remembering you started your Christian life in the marvel of God's grace, the gift he gave so great, the people he gave it for so wicked, and nothing will keep you going in your Christian life than remembering that the same way you started, without having to prove your worthiness of it, is the same way you keep growing. That's why grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's the difference, by the way, between Christianity and every other religion on earth. And everyone said, let's pray.